Bathgate Bible Church. Bible is our middle name. Uh, so if you want to keep your Bibles open uh, uh, at that passage, that would be uh, great. Now, I wanted to start with a bit of a question. I want to start with a question, and this is a question I want to get answers from the floor, uh, not just a think about it question. What kinds of things do you believe without actually seeing them firsthand? What things uh, do you know that are true, but you haven't actually seen or touched them? Blue, blue whales are the biggest animal. So you haven't got out there and measured one and compared it to all the other animals. Yep. Any other thoughts? Electricity. You can feel electricity, I suppose, but uh, you can't see it, yeah? Any other thoughts? <laughs> the laws of relativity, yes. Well, here's one for you. Um, you know that the world is round. Uh, you know it, you intrinsically accept it. But there are a bunch of people out there who actually don't believe that the world is round. They call themselves flat earthers. Because they can't see or experience or feel that the world is round, they they don't believe. Um they have theories about why the, wor- the world appears to be spherical, but is not. And they even have experiments that you can do at home to prove that the earth is flat. And it's all because they cannot see or touch the roundness, the sphereness of the earth. And for the most part, people do believe the world is globe-shaped, even though they can't see it for themselves. They accept the evidence and the testimony that other people tell them that the world is round. Now, on the 7th of December... Uh, 1972, Apollo 17 left the planet and they looked back and they used a camera to take this photo. This is that classic blue marble photo um, where, you, where you see clearly see the sphereness of the earth. But unless you've actually been in a rocket and left the planet, you can't see the sphereness of the earth. You have to rely on the testimony of a handful of people who have actually been on a rocket and left the planet and have been able to see the roundness of the earth. Either you have to accept their testimony and the evidence that they present, or you have to believe that NASA is actually out to trick you into believing that the world is round and that there's a giant global conspiracy for the roundness of the earth. And they're doing it with malicious intent. But, you know, the same question arises when we start looking at the resurrection of Jesus. Are you going to believe based on the evidence and the testimony that people present, or are you going to reject it and believe that it was done with malicious intent? You see, the passage uh, we're looking at today marks a shift in Jesus' ministry where it's no longer that you go and you find Jesus, you seek him out, you, you, you find him to get healing or to hear from him for teaching. You know, it used to be in those days you could put on your shoes, grab your drink bottle and go for a walk to meet Jesus. But this passage marks a shift where you don't go and touch Jesus to be healed anymore. You can't go and follow him. You can't go and hear him preach. Last week we got hints of this shift in Jesus' ministry when 
he rose from the dead and Mary met him outside the tomb. He rose from the grave, he ditched those grave clothes, he slipped out of the tomb with ease. But when he got outside and he met Mary, he told her, I'm back, but I'm not sticking around. Don't cling to me. Don't expect things to go back to the way they were because I'm ascending to my father. Now, Jesus isn't hanging around so you can see him touching him or or speak to him, but he is going to continue his ministry. So how's that going to work? How is Jesus going to continue his ministry if he's leaving? How can he... How can he represent the Father on earth if he's at the Father's side in heaven? And so today in our passage, we're seeing that shift of focus. The focus is now not on going to see Jesus, but taking Jesus out into the world, representing Jesus in the world. The disciples have seen and they've heard from Jesus, but they're now taking their experience out into the world. They will take their experience and tell others. They will take the evidence and they will show anybody who cares to listen to them. And they're like the handful of astronauts who've actually, who've actually left the world and they've seen that it's round. And Jesus is sending out a handful of disciples who have seen him alive and they can tell others because they've seen it themselves. So let's, we're going to go back to the text. We're going to see how this shift takes place. We're going to see this new post-resurrection paradigm. And it's a foundation for our faith. It's something that we can rely on. Now, Samuel, you might say, surely you can't think that these few verses of John are foundational to my faith. And I would say, yes, they are, apart from the fact they're part of Scripture. They aren't the cataclysmic events of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, but they show us they show us the foundational elements that secure our faith, the fact that we have eyewitnesses who take this message out into the world. These verses highlight the pattern or the paradigm of the Christian life. You know, we can't just pop on a plane and go to Israel and see Jesus. Our faith comes from the testimony of others. And so when we're finished here this morning, I want us to take away three key admonitions. I want you to take away three points as we investigate the text. Jesus' disciples must see and be sent. They must believe and be blessed, and they read and receive life. So just those three again, we're going to see and be sent, believe and be blessed, and read and receive life. As we look into these three points, it'll become obvious to us that the resurrected Jesus makes us alive, he builds our faith, and he sends us out in the Father's name. So to see and be sent, this is the first point. I want you to jump into the text with me. We're going to look at the text in, in just a moment and we're going to pick right off, pick up where we left off last week. We saw at Easter that Jesus had died and as, as God had planned and he rose from the dead three days later. We saw that this was an historical effect testified by external sources as well. And Jesus wasn't just pretend dead. He was spear shoved in his side dead. He was fully dead. And he went into the grave. And the ladies who, who followed saw where he was laid. They didn't just go to the wrong tomb on Resurrection Sunday. They saw where he was laid. And Mary had a lovely moment of reunion with Jesus. And she, and he, she went and took the message to the disciples. And so now our text picks up on that very same day after Jesus has risen from the dead and spoken to Mary. In verse, in verse 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, The doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. 
So that's that very evening. So the disciples had found out that, that early that morning that Jesus' body was missing and that Mary had seen him. And there was a bit of confusion, I'm guessing, within the crew. Uh, you know, John, who had visited the tomb and seen the folded up clothes, he thought that Jesus was alive, but not everyone. Mary believed that she was, he was alive. It hadn't yet clicked for them that Jesus was alive in fulfillment of the scripture and alive in fulfillment of the prophecies that he'd made before he died. The light bulbs hadn't come on yet. And we know from Luke's account that there had been two fellows on the road to Emmaus that day as well. And they had met Jesus and Jesus had taught them. And he explained the scripture to them. And when they realized it was Jesus, he disappeared. And they raced back into town, even though it was, even though it was at night. And they raced back to tell the disciples. So we've got this scene here where the guys are hiding out. They're afraid of the Jews still. The Jews being a, a, you know, a reference to the Jewish leaders who had put Jesus to death. You know, they were pretty scared because those Jewish leaders had managed to twist the Roman governor's arm into executing Jesus. And they were afraid for their lives. They thought if they could do that to Jesus, imagine what they could do to us. So they barricaded themselves in somebody's house and they are hoping that they can stay low and out of trouble until this mess blows over. And two guys turn up late that evening, having just seen Jesus on the road, and they're relaying their story to everyone. But there's still, many of them are still not convinced. It's just too crazy to take seriously these stories. So while the disciples are in that room, while they're discussing these things, trying to figure out what is going on, next minute, Jesus is there within, within their midst. And some poor soul is thinking, I'm pretty sure I locked that door. But the rest of them are freaking out. They think they've seen a ghost. Jesus has turned up in such a way to scare them stiff. So even though there's something about the resurrected Jesus that's scaring the life out of them, Jesus speaks to reassure them. He says, peace be with you. This is not Jesus turning up to lay into the disciples for their failure to stick by his side. This is not, this is not Jesus turning up to, uh, to pick on Peter for ditching him and rejecting him three times. He comes with peace. Peace be with you. Next, let's look at verse 20. He says, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad that they saw the Lord. Isn't it interesting that Jesus shows up with the marks of his execution? You know, his body has been restored to life, yet he's not so completely restored that he doesn't have the marks in his hands and in his side. He's still wearing his battle scars. He has a body that allows him to escape tombs sealed with massive stones and allows him to uh, disappear from the dinner table and allows him to wander through locked doors, but he still bears, bears the marks of his crucifixion. He shows his disciples the wounds in his hands from the nails and in the side from his spear. No fake execution here. He copped it. So the disciples see Jesus and they know that it's him because he bears the marks of death, even while he's alive with them. And I think he still bears these marks as a sign of the significance of the cross. The cross wasn't some speed bump in his plans. It wasn't a slight detour. The cross was part of the high point of his plans, a key element of it. Now, the disciples, having had a few moments to get over their fright, they are glad The stories were true. The evidence was valid. Jesus was alive 
and now he'd turned up for dinner. Luke records that Jesus even asked for a bit of fish to, to eat it so he could prove to them, I'm not a ghost, I'm, re- I'm here in a real corporeal body. And they were glad. They had their teacher back with them from the grave. And now the disciples had seen it. They had seen him who had died and now was in their presence. They were happy. They witnessed an executed man show up in their midst to show off his battle wounds. And they had seen it with their own eyes. And this is where Jesus starts to make this transition we've been talking about. He says to them again, peace be with you. But then he gives them this pattern of the Christian life. They are sent out. No longer do they come and see Jesus, but they are sent out. And we see that in verse 21. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. This is pretty, this is pretty massive. All throughout our gospel accounts, we see people come and they come as supplicants to Jesus. They come and ask him for wisdom. They come and ask him for healing. They come and ask him for teaching. They come to hear what this crazy guy has to say. And now they are going out. Those who have come to Jesus are now going out into the world. But also on top of that, it's crazy because John, all throughout his gospel, has been telling us about how Jesus represents the Father. He is obeying the Father. He has the words from the Father. He is doing what his Father has asked him to do. If you see me, you see the Father. And now Jesus sends the disciples out in the same way as As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So he's giving them a divine commission. He's passing on divine authority to his representatives in the same way that Jesus represents the Father. Not only does he send them out as his representatives, he sends them out with the Holy Spirit. In verse 22, when he had said this, he breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. So Jesus had proved to them that he was not a spirit or a ghost, but he was going to send on them the spirit or the ghost of the Holy Spirit. He symbolically blows on them the Holy Spirit to accompany the disciples in the sent mission. They had seen Jesus' life, death, burial and resurrection, and now they were going out with the Holy Spirit to continue that mission of Jesus. But why is breathing on the disciples, the method. I think you'd probably feel a bit weird if somebody comes up to you and goes, ah. but, but I think it, it, it means something. I think it means two things. Firstly, by breathing out the Holy Spirit, Jesus demonstrates the source of the Spirit. It comes to, from Jesus to the disciples. And, and Jesus has promised that he would send the Spirit. Remember the night before he died? Jesus said in John 15, I will send to you from the Father the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. So Jesus sends the Spirit who comes from himself but also from the Father. They both in tandem send the Holy Spirit. But, but secondly, I think that Jesus breathes on them because breath is the earthly and tangible way in which we can describe the spirit the holy spirit is the breath of god he is invisible yet actual he is tangible yet untouchable he is not physical but he is alive 
After all, when you think about life, if somebody stops breathing, they are dead. Breath represents life. Even when, uh, even when Genesis describes making Adam, God breathed into him the breath of life. And now Jesus, as God, he sends on them the breath of God, the life from God into his disciples, and he sends them out. As Adam was, was made alive by the creative breath of God, so Jesus' disciples are made spiritually alive and guided by the breath of God. But interestingly, what happens next? I send you out with the Holy Spirit and with a reminder of how the kingdom of God spreads, which is by the forgiveness of sins. If verse 23, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold the forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, I don't know about you, but the first time I just read that in passing, it seems a bit strange. It's very curious and if, if you think it's a bit weird, I agree. It's curious that our English translation appears to give the disciples the power to give or withhold forgiveness, essentially giving them the power to give or withhold salvation. But on closer inspection, it becomes a little bit clearer, though I wouldn't say it becomes less curious. I read a few commentaries on this verse, and they all pointed in the same direction. Basically, what they said, it comes down to the way that the words are translated doesn't carry the full sense of 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 um, of the meaning in English. I mean, I only started learning about passive verbs in the last couple of weeks, so I'm no authority on the subject. But the but one of the fellows that I read said it should be translated. Uh, it could be more literally translated this way: Whose sins you forgive shall have already been forgiven them, and whose sins you do not forgive shall have already not been forgiven them. As you can see, it comes out a little bit clearer uh, in the ESV. But th- do you see the point where they says has not already? Another way of saying the same thing might be to imagine the disciples are going out and proclaiming the good news about Jesus. And those who repent and believe will be told, your sins are forgiven. But if they reject the gospel, they will stand under judgment. And so what the disciples are doing as as they went out in the power of the Holy Spirit... They were pronouncing the heaven, heavenly reality into the earthly experience. If you repent and believe, your sins are forgiven. If you do not repent and believe, your sins are not forgiven. Or perhaps another way to think about it might be uh, as if you were working in a jail. Imagine it was your job to deal with uh, prisoners uh, and their release and parole. Imagine you have the joy of visiting some of the, the prisoners and you get to tell them the good news. In a few days, you will be free. Now, what you are doing is you're not deciding for them whether or not they're going to be free. What you're doing is telling them the news about what has already been decided, that you get parole. But you also have the bad news of, of telling some other prisoners and that, sorry, you don't meet the requirements for parole. You have to stay. So in both cases, you're reporting to them the good news of what has already been declared, what has already been decided and recorded. And so as we as Christians go out and proclaim the good news, we see people hear the news and they repent and they believe and we can joyfully pronounce to them, your sins are forgiven. But where there is rejection of Jesus and continued rebellion, we have to announce the heavenly declaration that their sins are not forgiven. 
And, and this is a pretty big deal because we're representing Christ on the earth in this way. And that's one of the reasons why we have a membership process here at Eastgate. When you come into membership, the elders look at your profession of faith and the evidence of fruit in your life, and then we make the proclamation, we believe your sins are forgiven, welcome to the body. We don't want to be guilty of proclaiming your sins forgiven and lull you into a false sense of security. And it's also part of the reason why we have a church discipline process as well. If you, if you show yourself to be rebellious towards God and after repeated attempts to call you back, you reject repentance, we can say on the basis of what we have seen, your sins are not forgiven. And we will treat you as somebody who has not had their sins forgiven outside the church and, and call you back to the church. Now, we could spend a bit more time sorting through this verse, but I think, I think you can see the point that I'm trying to make. You see Jesus' disciples being sent out into the world with the Holy Spirit to declare the heavenly news to people, either the good news of forgiveness or the judgment and exclusion from God. Now, in our story, Jesus appears to leave the disciples here. After seeing the resurrected Jesus, they are sent out as Jesus' representatives. They saw and were sent. But for us too, we must see and be sent. But as I've been saying, we don't get to see Jesus literally anymore. But we have the testimony of the disciples. We figuratively see Jesus and we are sent out by him. We have the evidence of the empty tomb and we have the testimony of the disciples. So we figuratively see the resurrected Jesus as the foundation for our faith. And we go out into the world with the power of the Holy Spirit to declare forgiveness or withhold forgiveness as has been decided in heaven. So I admonish you, see and be sent because the resurrected Jesus sends us out in the Father's name. But next up, we see that we should believe and be blessed. You see, back in the story, uh, poor Thomas missed out on all the action in verse in verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the, so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands in the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. So the poor guy rocks up the next day and all the disciples are telling him about how Jesus was there and they were freaking out and then they showed him his, he showed him their hands and the side and then, and then he breathed on us the Holy Spirit. And Thomas is saying, nah, you're all crazy. Unless, unless I see it and touch it, it not real. And this is the perfectly natural response for, for all of us. I mean, we live in a, in, a, in a world where things happen in a certain order. There are laws of physics and there are laws of biology. Doors that are locked prevent people from coming inside and dead people stay dead. Even though Thomas has the collective witnesses of the disciples that were there, he says, nope, I won't believe it till I see it. I won't believe it until I can feel the edges of those nail wounds or stick my hand in his chest cavity. Now, Jesus being the omniscient God that he is, hears all of this. And so next week, when the disciples are hanging out on a Sunday night, doors locked again, Jesus pops in for another visit. 
Let's look at verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put your hand, put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. So Thomas had said, I want to see the marks. I want to touch his hands and I want to touch his side. Otherwise I won't believe. So a week later, Jesus turns up and says, See my hands. Touch my hands and touch my side. He condescends to Thomas's request and he allows Thomas to come in for an inspection. He tells, he tells Thomas to shed his disbelief. Do not disbelieve, but believe. The collective testimony of the disciples seeing Jesus at different times in different places, plus the evidence of an empty tomb, should have been enough to convince Thomas to believe. The words of Jesus promising a resurrection after the burial should have been enough. The testimony of the Old Testament should have been enough for Thomas, but he stubbornly refused. But yet, in a remarkable moment of grace and kindness, Jesus meets Thomas where he's at. He even condescends to the demands of Thomas. But even as he's doing this, he's setting forth this new pattern that we've been talking about, this new paradigm that people need to believe in Jesus based on the testimony of others. As Thomas hears and receives, hears Jesus, or sees Jesus, sorry, he's overcome. And in that moment, he realizes that he's been wrong. He realizes that he's been stubborn and he re- responds with that climactic confession. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Thomas recognizes Jesus as his Lord and his God. Now, now, if he had just said, my Lord, we might think, oh, he's just being honorific, using a reverential term. However, he specifically says both my Lord and my God. He, he clearly believes Jesus to be divine. After all, Jesus had come up and, and spoken to him in the exact way that he had spoken to the disciples a week earlier when Jesus wasn't there. Some people don't like to think about Jesus as God, and so they'll take this verse and they'll say, well, obviously Thomas was exclaiming to God these words. He was just overcome and he was exclaiming to the Father, not to Jesus himself. Or some people would say, when he says, my Lord, he's talking about Jesus. And when he says, my God, he's referring to the Father. But that's not how the, the, the context goes. That's not how the text doesn't lend itself to that. It's clear that he is referring to Jesus as both my Lord and my God. And if you remember, for John, when he opens his gospel, he makes that outstanding claim right from the very start. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and Jesus was the Word. So even from the beginning, John has been claiming that Jesus is God. So it's no surprise when we get to the end that we have somebody making a confession that Jesus is God. Thomas, in a split second, comes to the realization of Jesus as God, and he can't help but exclaim it. And Jesus doesn't reject the admission. Now, Jesus uses this as an opportunity to remind them of the new pattern of faith. The foundation for people's faith in Jesus will no longer be seeing him in person. 
says in verse 29, look with me. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So for the disciples, they had that unique privilege of meeting Jesus face to face, even post-resurrection. But this is not to last. Now those who follow Jesus will have to believe without sight. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So, so Jesus here pronounces a beatitude. You remember the beatitudes from the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the meek. Uh, blessed are those who are persecuted. Well, Jesus announces another beatitude here. Blessed are those who believe without seeing. Uh, what is the outcome of this blessing? Why are we blessed? It, it doesn't, it doesn't say, but I'm sure we can, we can see the implication from the text. Christians who don't get to meet Jesus in the flesh don't miss out. We're not second-class Christians because we didn't meet Jesus face-to-face. Our faith isn't of a lower quality because of it. But the new norm is that people believe by hearing about this resurrected Jesus without physically seeing him. We believe and we are blessed because of it. For us here, Jesus is told to us by testimony. We receive the story of the resurrected Jesus. But the foundation of our faith isn't poorer because of it. Just as Thomas should have accepted the word of the disciples, the evidence of the empty tomb, the prophecies of Jesus and the Old Testament witness, we too should be able to believe despite not actually seeing Jesus present in this room. We have everything that Thomas had to believe. We have everything we need. And so we too should be like Thomas who responds and confesses, my Lord and my God. So my admonition to you is believe and be blessed because the resurrected Jesus sends us out. Oh, sorry, the resurrected Jesus blesses us in belief. So on the first point, we saw the resurrected Jesus sends us out in the Father's name and we have just seen the resurrected Jesus blesses us in belief and we're on the home stretch here. We've got a couple more verses to go. We will see here that we ought to read and receive life. You see, John writes these words so that through faith in the resurrected Jesus, we can be made alive. Read the two verses with me, 30, 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So this is where John pops out of his narrative. He pops out of storytelling and he, and he gives us, it's almost like he's signing off. Now it's conceivable to think that these verses are actually the end of the main body of the book of John. Um, and that chapter 21 is just a, an epilogue. After all, as we were talking about, if John opens with this pronunciation that Jesus is God, opens with this argument that Jesus is God, and then proves it by various things all throughout John, it would make complete sense for John to end with Thomas saying, my Lord and my God. But unfortunately, it wasn't, too, it wasn't tidy enough. Uh, sorry, it is nice and tidy, but it doesn't quite encapsulate the whole story. So John has to put this epilogue on the end to tie up some loose ends and to and to, to finish things off. 
But we can see that by the time we get to John 20, 29, John has achieved his purpose. And so he writes these two verses to tell us, this is why I wrote this book. I want to write these purpose statements so that you get it. So what does he want us to get when we read John? First, he wants us to know that he wasn't attempting to have a comprehensive history of Jesus. He says, Jesus did a bunch of stuff that I haven't written about. But why did he write what he did? John wrote, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John writes so that other people who haven't met Jesus in person can believe in Jesus and receive from him. John is one of the the later Gospels, we assume. And by the time it's written, we can assume that uh, there are less and less people around who have actually met Jesus in person. So into this world, John writes so that people can hear about Jesus and believe in him as God. John writes so that you and I may read and receive life. Over the course of history, God has spoken to relatively few people out of all of the population of the earth throughout history. And those that he did speak to in person mostly ended up having their words recorded as scripture. So for the average person like you or me, we have to come to the Bible to hear from God. We have to come because there's no one else, there's no one else uh, who can give us the words of God. There's no one, nowhere else to go. So as part of God's sovereign plan, John was a witness to the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and he writes down a record of these things happening and the pattern of belief in Jesus so that it can continue. We must hear about Jesus in order to respond to him in faith and repentance. The new paradigm of hearing about Jesus through the testimony of his disciples continues through John to this day because we have his words in front of us now. And because he wrote this down, you and I can believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Because John wrote, you and I can believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And because we believe and confess this, we can receive life in his name. Jesus uses these words of John and the rest of Scripture to prompt and to shape our belief. Because we can hear about and respond to Jesus, we can have eternal life. So I want you to understand how precious these words are. I mean, this book itself is not mystical. And if you incantate the words, it doesn't become magical. Yet through these words of scripture, God brings life to his people. So I encourage you to treasure these words. Immerse yourself in them so that you may receive eternal life. Now, now, when I wrote this sermon, I, I, I called this point read and receive life. I'm not trying to imply that reading is a precursor to salvation, but, but it was a nice alliteration, read and receive. But I wanted to highlight to us the importance of receiving the word of God. If it's not by reading, it's by hearing. We don't need to learn to read to receive salvation, but we must have God's word communicated to us. But for the majority of us in this room, reading is a pretty easy thing for us to do. We can we can read and we have multiple versions of the Bible sitting on our shelf in our own tongue. So I encourage you to read. Immerse yourself in scripture. Listen to it. Read it to others. 
Learn how to read it well. Memorize it. Be like the composer of Psalm 119 who rejoices over God's word and treasures it. And I encourage you to help those around you who can't read. Those who are illiterate or blind uh, or um, or don't have God's word in their own language and might need help understanding it. Through the proclamation of God's word, we receive life. And because we hear about Jesus Christ, who we must profess as Lord and God. And so we should also help others to hear about God, to hear about Jesus and profess him as Lord. So my admonition to you is to read and receive life because John writes so that through faith in the resurrected Jesus, we can be made alive. So we've seen that the resurrected Jesus makes us alive, he builds our faith, and he sends us out in the Father's name. So the disciples saw that that Jesus is alive, he sends them out with the new testimony, in the new testimony paradigm, with the help of the Holy Spirit. They went out to proclaim the gospel, and we hear those disciples now, even now, thousands of years later, through his words, the continued proclamation of the gospels, And we too are sent out to take this good news. And we believe and we're blessed. Belief based on this testimony. Even though you don't get to go and and see Jesus in the flesh anymore. You don't go to Jesus anymore. But you can hear the message of the disciples. And you can hear the message of Jesus' current day disciples who are proclaiming it. From pulpits like these. In Bible studies. um, in, In quiet conversations with friends and family. And we should read and receive life because John writes to tell others of the resurrected Jesus. John gives you a gospel that is a faith foundation. Immerse yourself in scripture, not just reading, but listening, memorizing, dwelling on. Let it pervade your conscience so that you can believe in Jesus and receive life. So I think there's not much else to do but ask you ask you some questions what are you going to believe that you haven't seen will you be the flat earther who refuses to believe the world is round because you can't see it and touch it yourself will you be thomas who refuses to believe jesus is alive because you can't see jesus or touch him what will it take i'm guessing that if you still refuse jesus It's not for the lack of evidence. It's because of our hardness of heart, because of our pride. So I ask you to put aside your pride and to come and investigate the claims of the Bible. But what about if you do believe? I want to ask you, how is that belief shaping your life? Do you just see Jesus as a, a good part of your life or do you see him as Lord and God over it? Does your way of life prove to others that Jesus is Lord and God? Does your life reflect the fact that Jesus' disciples are sent into the world as his representatives? Do you live as though you want others to receive this life from Jesus too? Or do you you satisfied to keep it to yourself? Our, Our faith is not based on silly myths. Receive the good news from the apostles, even today in the Bible. 
The testimony of others and the evidence lead us to believe with great assurance that we're not living in vain. On top of that, the Spirit is with us, working within us to grow our faith and work it out in righteousness. So I urge you to follow that post-resurrection pattern of taking the good news of the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ into the world as Christ's representatives. Tell people of the eternal life in Jesus Christ received through repentance and faith. Tell them of the exclusion of rebels from God's kingdom. Tell them that they may yet have peace when they come to this faith of ours. We cannot yet see for certainty, but we can hear the message with assurance. We can hear and we can believe. So I will leave you with these words from Paul, where he says in Romans, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you give us such clear message of the life, death, burial and resurrection of Christ. We thank you, Lord, that even while you have bodily resurrected, you have, sorry, you have bodily ascended and you are seated at the right hand of the Father, that, that we can still know, we can still know with assurance that your claims are true and that we ought to follow you and submit to you. We pray, Lord, that, that you would send us out having seen in your, having seen the, the Christ figuratively. We pray, Lord, that you would build up in us belief and bless us. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to read and receive life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.